Hey, just want to get ahead of this episode, as always, to remind you that this podcast will contain adult language and adult themes. Uh, this episode's a little different than our usual ones, so uh, this will contain spoilers for the game Final Fantasy VII, the original 1997 release, in addition to the 2003 Studio Ghibli film Howl's Moving Castle. What makes a story work? We have all the tales we've told on Cavalcade and so far, whether they be historical, mythological, or fictional, but they all have some things in common. We always have a protagonist going out, accomplishing their goals, or failing at their goals, and or having everybody they love die, in some cases. But what do these stories mean, and how do we conceptualize stories as a whole? This week on Cavalcade of Tales, we'll look at some of the structures used to tell stories, their pros and cons, and look at a couple of very fun examples. Hop along, shall we? Hey everybody, welcome to Cavalcade of Tales. As always, I am your host, Drew, the millennial with a history degree. Uh, Let me apologize in advance for a couple things. Uh, First... I'm going to sound a bit gross because it's allergy season in New England. It's uh, nature has been really fucking me up this week. Uh, this episode is going partially feels different because I got heat exhaustion uh, for mo- about half of this week. So a lot of my notes were done very quickly at the end of the week using something I had conceptualized from before the podcast had even started. So I'm going to sound a bit gross. And uh, the episode's going to feel different, but it's also a very different kind of episode. My second apology is that I didn't realize that last week's episode went up and didn't have my opening or outro in it. Um, I was having some trouble with Podcastle last week, which is the program I used to record the software. Record the software. Record the podcast. And I didn't realize that it just straight up didn't fucking record any of the audio for those two segments or rather it up it recorded the audio but it didn't upload that audio uh because of that i'm going to real quick do the um surprise that i had at the end of the episode (laughs) because nobody got to hear it Uh, so last week's episode since it was the last episode before the beginning of june i wanted to announce the book for the Patreon's book club. Um, Yes, there's nobody in the Patreon at the moment, but uh, if listeners want to read along, that's totally fine. I'm not going to stop you. People should be reading more books. Uh, If people were more well-read, maybe the world wouldn't be in the fucking state it is. So... The um, I did post this on TikTok. Uh, if any of my listeners are on TikTok, then follow me at White Trash Historian. Uh, the first book, because it's June and it's Pride Month, and will I do an episode about queer characters? Maybe. I haven't decided yet. It's not on the... I'll add it to my wall of ideas. Uh, but the first book for the We Won't Talk About Book Club book club is The Song of Achilles by Madeline Miller. Uh, This is a retelling of the story of Achilles and Patroclus, which uh, is most famously noted on in the Iliad, and it uh, does play up a bit more of the homoeroticism, and um, so I really hope everybody enjoys the book, and I'm, again, I'm sorry that uh, last week's episode was literally just the content. I mean, some people would like just the content, but, and not listening to me ramble. Especially not now when I'm congested because I'm getting bukkakied by trees. But anyway, yes. And if you want to join the uh, the book club officially and discuss the book on the Discord and uh, help support the podcast monetarily, as always, you can do that at patreon.com slash cavalcade of tales. All right. Now to the meat of the episode. So this week we're getting a bit meta because we're going to look at the types of journeys 
that protagonists and people can take. I've isolated two. One people probably know very well, and the other I'm not as sure. And so the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to do the one... Well, I'm familiar with both, but I'm more familiar with one of these because of my upbringing. So, um, as I've alluded to before on this podcast, I was raised up neo-pagan Wiccan. And one of the things that I show a great, I used to show a great affinity for, I'm working my way back up to it now because I'm out of practice, were tarot readings. And one of the things people don't get about the tarot deck is the major arcana, the 22 cards that make up the major arcana, actually tell a story. And it is the story of the fool's journey from when the fool enters the world and begins his quest to the end of the world. Uh, it is chronicled in 22 cards. Uh, each card has its own meaning and point in the adventure, along with how and however, depending on the alignment of the card, will depend on how that aspect affects the journey. Um, so the first thing I'm going to do here is I'm going to do a quick run through of all 22 major arcana, uh, what they mean, what stage they are, and what they mean if they're uh if they're you know the traditional or upright and what it means if they are reversed um so let's get started because this is a 22 part first section that i've made for myself so as um their suits are numbered 0 through 20 21 equaling 22 cards so the first one is number zero the fool this is your main character. This is the person who the whole journey is centered around. Uh, when upright, they talk about the new beginnings, uh, spontaneity, and the innocence, kind of before shit hits the fan. Reversed, however, the fool takes on some of the more, you know, negative things that happen when starting a project, such as recklessness or taking too many risks. And uh, your fearlessness, but like, in a cocky kind of way so you have to be kind of careful about that um also i should probably note um the thing with tarot is that it's a lot up to interpretation and um i always when i used to do it i used to talk about the fact that like reading the tarot is it's interpretive um and the simple act of knowing how the future is going to go will change the future because of you know some science thing it's that it's that weird thing in physics where it's like observe uh the simple act of observing a phenomena changes how the phenomena will react which is sounds like a bit of a fucking cop out in my book but i don't know like i as i've stated multiple times before i am not a science person uh the first card after the fool is the magician uh this person is an advisor or a mentor and is considered like the first masculine force that image that you run into in your journey uh they uh symbolize creation strength and clarity uh but of course not all mentors are good so you sometimes have to deal with uh when reversed a dark power manipulation or even narcissism then it's the high priestess who is traditionally like the first feminine force you meet uh this is uh a confidant uh i went upright she symbolizes intuition divine truth and sensitivity uh but because you know the tarot as an interpretive thing goes back to i believe the 16 or 1700s uh, the most of the female ones have that trouble where the reverse is a uh, harm, secrets, and a hidden agenda. Because, you know, sometimes, you know, when you tell someone a secret, that's giving them its form of power. After the high priestess, there is the empress. Um, this is the mother figure or the uh, driving force that is a feminine driving force. Um... In my example later, you'll see that this isn't, um, that I've chosen, which was an epiphany when I was writing out this outline. I was just like, holy shit, I can't believe this character is on the fool's journey rather than the hero's journey. I mean, it could probably be very easily argued that they're on the hero's journey as well, but 
it's harder to find actual media where you're like, that's the fool's journey. Um, so the Empress is a controlling feminine force. Uh, upright, they usually uh, signify growth and fertility and beauty. Uh, however, reversed, uh, they can be selfish, impatient, and overwhelming. Um, which is, again, an interesting thing to think about when we get into the example. Number four is the Emperor. Uh, this is your counter to the Empress. This is your father or a the masculine force that drives things. Uh, usually upright, they represent authority, power, and stability. Uh, but, like most male emperors, reversed, it usually uh, re results in tyranny, chaos, and anger. Because, as we all know, and as I will continue to point out in this podcast, statistically speaking, women rulers do a better job than men do in terms of, like, peace and productivity and all that shit number five is the hierophant this is a religious figure or in our story aspects like a call to action or a call from god uh, in the upright tradition this has to do with in the upright truth in the upright it has to do with tradition trusting and wisdom but everything has its you know it's seedy underside and like with most religions there's misconception hypocrisy and blind faith is always a good thing um i'm not gonna get into shagging on other religions here but um if you know you know number six is the lovers this is either a romantic partner or just the concept of romance in general upright they signify love passion and union between two people which is always fun uh, but there's that famous quote, I think it's Tennyson, it is better to love than lost and never to love at all, because the reverse is suffering, obedience, and conflict. I've always found obedience to be a very interesting thing as part of the lover's reverse, because you kind of think of that poor scenario of the, uh, the housewife being controlled by her husband. It's getting a lot better now, because millennials and Gen Z aren't putting up with that kind of shit, but... You know, for a lot of our parents and our grandparents' generations, that's just unfortunately the kind of shit that happened. Uh, number seven is the chariot, which has to do with travel or movement. Uh, the chariot is kind of like the big, uh, you're kind of way of going around, because like, you can't just keep walking around on foot. Um, as someone who walks everywhere, you know, sometimes I, I, would, I wouldn't mind a chariot. Uh, so upright, the chariot stands for departure, discipline, and courage. Because uh, sometimes it takes a lot of courage to go somewhere. Uh, but, as in the reverse, is carelessness, arrogance, and wanderlust. I think this one has to do a lot more with uh, travel with an intention. And the reverse is just like, I mean, I don't know, I guess I'll go. I have nothing better to do. Number eight is strength. This is overcoming trials. Upright, it is courage, passion, and vitality. And reverse, it is struggle, pride, and weakness. Uh, weakness being the reverse of strength is uh, not necessarily, you know, well, it's a bit on the fucking nose. But um, one of the things I think it is, is it's part of you know with struggle and pride it's less about being too weak to overcome the trial i think it's the type of thing where like by overcoming the trial you will lose something or you will become a weaker person like those saw fucking things uh what movie was it there was like a whole saw challenge where it like started out with a bunch of people and a person died in each room as they were going along uh, that would be the sort of um, strength reverse kind of thing because every chamber makes the group of five weaker. Uh, the next is number nine, the hermit, which is about gaining knowledge and separation. Upright, this stands for wisdom, independence, and awareness. However, reverse, this is isolation, resignation, and distance. The hermit's always an inter interesting one. 
because on the one hand it is that taking a uh, setting off for the pursuit of knowledge but it also kind of points out the fact that like isolation for a pursuit of knowledge is really tough for humans because we are inherently social creatures um just we're the sheep that succeeded um number 10 wheels of is the wheel of fortune this has to do with twists of fate in the upright position it can stand for fate karma or the unpredictable um which isn't inherently negative or positive uh karma as we as most people know is the uh hindi and buddhist tradition of uh do good and good will happen to you do bad and bad will happen to you uh but it's interesting because the reverse is fully the negative forms of these processes because it's like the reverse of the wheel of fortune is a negative phase bad luck or a lack of control which is always kind of interesting because you know most of the cards don't aren't really good or bad there's a couple that are like a bit iffy but like wheel of fortune on its best is solely neutral because it's like fate and karma are very neutral forces you can't really say fate is good or bad i know there's it's ironic doing saying that in this episode where a lot of it is about you know standing against your fate and a lot of stories are about defying fate and doing what you want but it is a neutral force because just because you're the, just, the fate had nothing to do with it uh 11 justice this is uh the final battle it's a little weird that the final battle is this early on but you'll realize that this is um this i think this whole segment works well with a certain type of story that i'll touch upon when i'm through all these that there's a final battle in the middle think of it like the twin towers for the for this before i do my real example you're it's the third the second of the uh friggin lord of the rings trilogy it is like 60 percent final battles But it's only halfway through the film. Uh, upright, justice will is judgment, fairness, and clarity. But reverse, it is unfairness, guilt, and punishment. All those seem very self-explanatory. The hanged man is punishment for crimes. Uh, upright, it is deep insight, change, and release. Whereas reverse, it is a standstill, a sacrifice, or a lack of control. I've always found the Hangman is a really interesting card um, because of its kind of, if it's upright, it's the kind of like rehabilitation that the American system fucking wishes. The prison industrial complex is a fucking nightmare, and it is just a way for people to try to make slaves and do it legally. Um, that's why so many people of color get punished proportionately but uh america's a fucking shithole nightmare uh get me out please anyway so the upright hangman is your repentance you know you serve your time you think about what you've done you change and you are released into society a better person whereas the reverse of that is the american system where it's people don't learn their lessons sacrifice or executions and the lack of control because you are forced into a cell and to, th to think about what you did and make us cheap license plates i used uh in the area i lived before my current apartment uh i actually lived down the street from the uh, county jail and what they had was they would literally have the inmates because this is a rural area they had them running a farm and they would sell vegetables. Low-key, though, they had this, like, 50-pound bag of potatoes that was, like, super cheap. And, like, you would have potatoes for, like, the whole fucking summer. It was great. A um, little bit of my Irish show in there. Oh, we gotta get us a lot of potatoes. Um, 
the thirteenth card is death. Um, here I will do your standard tarot card disclaimer. Death is not a bad card. Death just symbolizes the end of something. Uh, the upright of death is endings, letting go, and this and being able to open yourself up to new beginnings, which is very beautiful and i will not go into uh proper ways to deal with grief but um you know it wouldn't hurt whereas the reverse of death is stagnation holding on and just straight up grief um as someone who has lost people close to them and who is who doesn't shy away from death and the darkness of the world uh half because of the aesthetic and half because you know it is what it is um i think it's important to think about the good aspects of death you know just because someone has died or some you've lost someone whether this counts for people and pets i'm not i'm not gonna be an asshole about it we all feel grief differently and i think Although grief is part of the reverse, it's a healthy thing, and um, I guess the uh, good little grief tip that I will always that I give people um, is live your life in manageable moments, um, because the dead don't want you to join them. So if you start your day and you're you know overcome with grief about the person or pet you've lost, uh, take it in chunks of time if you can't do an hour do like half an hour if you can't do a half hour do like 10 minutes at a time even if it means living your life minute by minute at least you're alive and at least you're mo and it, you can start moving forward that got fucking deep uh number 14 let's try to get away from grief chat uh is temperance this is enlightenment and lessons learned. Uh, Temperance personally has been a favorite of mine. I don't know why. I just, I've always really enjoyed the card. Uh, my personal tarot deck is uh, Renaissance paintings. And uh, Temperance is also one of the prettiest cards in the deck. So. Uh, but upright, Temperance is stands for balance, for harmony, and patience. Well, as when it's reversed, it stands for a lack of balance, extremes, and fragility. Um, it's a little, I've always had a little trouble, a little bit of disconnect, because on the one hand, temperance in the story is this sort of like, once you've over, once death has come and you've lost, and you're starting a new beginning, and temperance is supposed to be like, what did we learn from our previous journey that just ended? How can we bring it forward to the next journey? And sort of like the zen of loss which is I don't know how to define that that just popped into my head randomly but like it's all about harmony and patience and like the you know traversing balance versus lack of balance uh, number 15 is the devil uh, this one is the major obstacle uh, or the big boss. Upright, the devil is uh, temptation, seduction, or materialism. Because he's a Barbie girl. Um, also, can I just real quick aside? Um, I am living for all the memes the Barbie movie is making right now. That police, that mugshot meme. Beautiful. Draw your OTP. Um <laughs> But um, the reverse of the devil is uh, fra uh, freedom, lack of will, and resentment. This one has always been um, a bit a bit interesting to think about it because you have freedom and lack of will together. So it makes me wonder if like because the devil, it's kind of the fact that like for some people what this malevolent figure is offering is something better you know temptation into you could tempt them into freedom um, 
next we have the tower um the tower is honestly if you want to get technical it's probably the worst of the cards for the story it is the card you don't want to see when it comes up in a reading because this stands for calamity or the loss of something important uh, upright it is a disruption a change of life or an awakening whereas reverse it is a collapse a stormy time or a restlessness it's it's a symbol for a great change and most of the time it's not necessarily a positive one number 17 is the star this is gathering blessings uh, upright it means faith hope or fortune whereas reverse it is insecurity discouragement and a lack of faith um you could easily read in the judeo-christian context of the star as a religious symbol whether it be the star of david for judaism or the star that baby jesus was under that name is escaping me north star was it serious i don't really remember and kind of gathering you know blessings and faith which does make sense because the tarot deck uh, was made in 16th and 17th century italy uh, in fyi i don't know if you know about italy but uh they make popes and fascists there um not anymore i don't believe i'm not sure how much of the fascist party is still in italy um it's also they make some great food even though we often think of the tomato and they didn't get the tomato until the new world um, that's the fun thing if you're ever watching a historical thing that is supposed to take place before the age of uh, 1490s when they quote unquote discovered but when they came in contact with the americas any potatoes or tomatoes historically inaccurate those did not come over to europe until after the 1490s the next card is number 18 the moon this is the re revelation of secrets uh, upright it stands for mysteries dreams and foreboding uh, but reversed is darkness fear and insecurities um it works out well because it does play up this sort of like i image we as humans have developed of the moon where it's like mysterious and it's but like it's also you know like it gets dark and then light again that was the dumbest way i could have put that uh we're just gonna move on to number 19 the sun the sun is your divine intervention upright is pleasure rebirth and being bathed in light uh reverse however it is negativity arrogance and carelessness this is a fun one uh speaking on the more ancient gods because uh, with divine intervention because on the one hand you could have good divine intervention uh where you're getting protection um for example those two children that were going to be sacrificed and zeus sent down a bowl of heaven that's a divine intervention that was good because those kids survived well the boy did the girl fell off and drowned in the ocean which is a bit fucked uh but however you also have the reverse version um where divine intervention is not a good thing which uh cue in here any story of poseidon raping a human woman all right number 20 we're almost done is judgment this is the final battle against the big boss so you've had your middling battle back in justice but now you have taking down the actual enemy it is upright it is liberation redemption and awakening uh but in reverse it is doubt punishment and destruction uh essentially upright you win and things you could win and doubt reversed is uh either the unforeseen consequences of winning or uh, just what happens when you fucking lose and then the final card the world this is the journey home upright it is spontaneity arrival in life and reverse it is incompletion emptiness and a lack of closure 
Uh, it's very interesting, uh, the world, because since it is that journey home, you either have the kind of bouncing you stuff because you've accomplished all you need to do, or the fact that like you just have to go home before seeing the task be finished. And so that, that's just the backbone of our 21 major arcana. Well, 22, sorry. So I had a minor epiphany when I was doing the outlines for this episode, because I had originally... Before the podcast had even started, I would worked on little bits of ideas, and I always had this concept of doing, like, the journey of the fool as explained through the tarot versus the hero's journey. And when I was writing out the note, like, transposing the notes, making them make more sense, I realized that, like, most JRPGs follow the fool's journey. Because you have that sort of, you start out with your character... And you go through, you gather allies, you go overcome some trials, you have a mid lane boss who you thought was the real big bad, then it turns out there's actually a bigger bad. And then you have to gain your end of game power-ups, and then you have the final battle, and then the aftermath. So, I thought a fun example of this because it's the first one that popped into my head when I was doing this research before I realized I'm like, oh yeah, the Fool's Journal is just RPG, JRPGs especially. But like other RPGs too. Um, was I did Final Fantasy VII as the Fool's Journey. Cloud Strife took the Fool's Journey from start to finish. And it's a bit rough because like in no way is this meant to insult Final Fantasy VII. I have not completed the original game, but I have uh played the shit out of the first remake and i know a lot of the plot beats because i listened to um a friend of the podcast um first encounter which is a podcast where two buddies uh, make each other play games from their childhood that they loved that the other never played before and season one is all about final fantasy 7 so what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through a very, very light, This there's going to be a lot of details left out, and a couple of these are like a little gerrymandered into making them work, but I'm going to go through a rough plot synopsis in the vein of the fool's journey of Final Fantasy VII. Uh, so when we start up, we meet up with Cloud, who is the fool. And he is going through, he is working with Avalanche. Uh, the first character we meet, Barret, who is the magician, this masculine, first masculine force that's your ally, uh, comes and they blow up the reactor. He then uh, meets up with childhood friend Tifa, the high priestess confidant. And they are fighting against Shinra, at the Shinra Corporation, as the eco terrorist group Avalanche. Uh, this game has, and concept is one of the many reasons why I um, have mixed views on eco-terrorism. I should care more than I do about what eco-terrorists, the negativity of eco-terrorists, like the negative aspects of what they're doing, but like, I don't know. Save the planet. Fuck corporations. Unless they want to sponsor me. And give me a lot of money. So. As they are putzing about destroying and fighting Shinra, they meet Aerith. Aerith is the Empress in this case. And they rescue her from, they have to at one point rescue her from Shinra HQ. Uh, the reason I put Aerith as the Empress is because she has this knowledge of the planet and, and uh, way to, and understands that it needs to be saved. And she is sort of this feminine driving force for a good chunk of it. Once Aerith is saved, the uh, president of Shinra is then killed by Sephiroth, who is believed to have died five years earlier. Uh, Sephiroth being the uh, chief, one of the chief antagonists, uh, is the emperor because he is this masculine force that is driving the plot. Uh, the team knows that he is a danger to the planet, so they uh, begin to chase him across the globe to try to kill, defeat him, and save the planet. This is their call to action, the Hierophant. So they go about, they gather some allies, they get Yuffie, they get Vincent, Sid, 
Cats. Uh, they got read through a chain before they left Shogun. Uh, bear with me. I have a t-shirt that is the Final Fantasy crew, but it is them as the Brady Bunch, but I think that's everyone. Because that's nine. Yeah. Uh, and as they're traveling, uh, there is a moment where Cloud has, goes on a date with... In the game, it's the female character you have the most affinity with. Um, in my personal opinion, it's Tifa because I think she's a better love interest. A, because of that whole childhood friends trip, and B, because I know what happens to another one. And, and my second choice would be Aerith, but most people know what happened to her. <laughs> uh, so the date in the Golden Saucer, I call those the lovers. Um, they also, as they're traveling, get various forms of transportation, such as a chocobo, a boat and an airship, uh, including the assistance of the pilot Sid, and this is your chariot travel. The gang gun goes to the Temple of Agents to secure the Black Materia, uh, overcoming the trials and gaining strength. However, Cloud is under Sephiroth's sway uh, and gives up the Black Materia, and Aerith goes off alone to stop uh, Sephiroth herself with her ancient powers, which is the Hermit. Once Aerith is alone, Sephiroth tries to have Cloud kill her. He fails, so Sephiroth just kills her herself. And then the gang learns that he's made of Genova cells, uh, which is a large twist that uh, he is the fact that Genova might be a bigger force than Sephiroth in this. And this is your Wheel of Fate twist, other than the fact that uh, Aerith fucking dies. And so the gang decides that, like, to, in order to avenge their friend and stop, continue to the goal of, you know, save the planet, they will go to the Northern Crater to confront him, which is Justice. At the crater, it is revealed that Cloud is considered a failed Genova and Sephiroth clone, and Sephiroth casts Meteor, which is the Hangman. Um... He then seals off the northern crater, and Cloud falls into the life stream, and while the rest of the team are captured by Shinra, uh, which is at this point is the death card. Cloud is then once they escape Shinra, they find Cloud on an island, and he is suffering from Mako poisoning and is cared for by Tifa. However, the facility is attacked by a terrestrial weapon known as uh, Weapon with a capital, and the two fall into the life stream. Uh, while in the live stream, uh, Cloud and Tifa reconstruct Cloud's memories, uh, showing that Cloud was experimented on by Shinra because he was never actually a soldier. And he was rescued by a friend he had made named Zack, Aerith's first boyfriend. And the trauma of seeing Zack die protecting him uh, made a false personality within Cloud. Uh, this revelation I consider temperance, the epiphany and learning of a certain truth. Cloud uh, rejoins the group uh, and revealing that Aerith did in fact accomplish part of her goal, uh, which, uh, and that's, so we knew Sephiroth had affected it somehow as the big bad devil. However, the meteor is coming down and the planetary weapons are attacking people, which I would consider the tower because shit's going fucked. Uh, Sinra decides to use their resources to try to assist and help the planet for once, even though it's real fucked up because they're like, let's just make a big Mako cannon and one of the things you learn that the Mako energy is is actually in the souls of the people who have died on the planet, so they're like, uh, instead of, um, we should help for all the time we've spent using people's souls as an energy source and instead turn it into a big fuck-off cannon weapon. Not ideal. Um... Cloud then gives a rousing speech and allows the other remaining party members to decide whether they want to uh, leave or join him in confronting Sephiroth. I counted this as the star, this gathering of allies and, and getting ready to fight the final battle. While, get while running about trying to figure out where to get to the final battle, uh, they fight... Uh, Hojo, and it is revealed that uh, the scientist Hojo is actually uh, Sephiroth's father, uh, which I, this secret reveal and the fact that it is pretty clear at this point that Genova is the main antagonist of this game is the moon. And the gang go to the northern crater to defeat Genova and Sephiroth. The crater 
uh, which was previously sealed by Sephiroth, uh, opens up and uh, gives them a straight path directly to fight, which is uh, some pretty divine planetary intervention, which I called the sun. Uh, the team goes in, they fight and defeat Genova, and then Cloud falls further into the livestream and defeats Sephiroth for good in the, in the livestream, which is our Judgment Final Battles. And then the crew then goes their separate ways to bring peace to their homelands, and in the good ending of the game, you see, like, 5,000 years later, you see Red 13 with some cubs uh, on a new lush and green planet showing that everything worked out, and that is the world. I know there's a lot of stuff I left out. I know the pacing of that was a bit odd. But yeah. Most JRPGs are the fool's journey. You have your gathering of the cast. You have your travel around the map. You've got... Your trials, your twist, your mid-battle. Uh, then you have everything going wrong a little bit after the mid-battle. Finding out who the final boss actually is there's usually a calamitous event that the final boss does once they come out uh you then go around gathering weapons and blessings and strength in order to then and secrets to how to defeat the final enemy uh you go you fight the final boss uh everything is great uh, usually in that final fight there is some sort of like divine intervention or like scripted part of the scene and then all your characters live happily ever after so yeah jrpgs they're actually the fool's journey, which is something I find really fucking neat. Okay, now for the second half of this episode. This episode might be a smidge longer than I originally intended, because I'm already at over 40 minutes, and I'm just starting the second half. Uh, but this half might be a bit smaller. So, Freya, will you leave the microphone box alone, please? No shoes. Thank you. Yes, you are a sweet girl. Will you stop trying to chew shit? You act like I don't feed you. So the second part of... <laughs> brief cabin relief. The second part of this is the hero's journey. So the hero's journey is also uh, colloquially sometimes called the monomyth. It is a concept popularized by Joseph Campbell, who, uh, while influenced under Jungian psychology, believes that you can essentially use this monomyth structure uh, to compare and analyze different religions and folktales. Um, I will, I do want to start out pointing out that there is some pushback against this theory. Uh, certain folklorists dismissed this concept, uh, saying it was, uh, not rooted in any scholarly things, and it has a lot of, uh, source bias, uh, tending to choose a lot more of the, uh, Western traditions than some other Eastern or, uh, like, African traditions. Um, it has also, however, recently been used as sort of the backbone for understanding something that is known as the sympathetic plot, which is a uh, universal story structure where a goal-driven protagonist confronts ob obstacles, overcome them, and then is profits, like profits or is rewarded. Uh, so the way the mono myth and the hero's journey works is it's th stop chewing the fucking notebook. Why must you chew everything? You're not a dog. No chews. Fuck. You can have pets, but Jesus, stop eating my shit, Freya. Cat interlude, too. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I forgot where I was. I think I was on the stages. Um, so yeah, three stages of the hero's journey. Uh, there is the first the ordinary world then there is the extraordinary world i swear to god if you chew that fucking box i will throw you out the car the second is the extraordinary world and the third is the return to the ordinary um, each of these can be broken down into uh, smaller sections so for example uh, the first stage is the ordinary world we start with the world the hero is used to their call to adventure their refusal of the call to adventure, the meeting of the mentor, and then crossing the threshold. Once the hero has crossed the threshold, they're in the extraordinary world, uh, where the first stage is trials, allies, and enemies. Which, it it seems like it's a lot, but I it's less of like condensing down a bunch of concepts, and I think it's the introduction. No, off the couch. It's the introduction of, like, the 
it's like minor trials the introductions of like the people that are on the, your side and the people that will be fighting against you yes you can't be on the couch if you're gonna chew everything fuck um and then you have the major ordeal and then a reward and then there's the return to the ordinary world however there's some sort the first stage is a roadblock something that's preventing you from fully integrating back into your ordinary world uh then resurrection uh which is a concept that is incredibly complicated uh and i will try to explain better when i do my example and then the last one is colloquially known as return with elixir but it's the sort of like it's the coming back with what you've gained from the extraordinary world um this concept has been used to explain a lot of different stories and you can you know graft it onto a lot of different ones um so what i decided to use as an example is uh when i was walking around like a sun-addled idiot constantly getting heat exhaustion this past week um i uh in order to make myself feel better and to just lose myself in a world where i wasn't melting I uh, was watching Studio Ghibli movies because they're beautiful and lovely and Miyazaki is a fucking treasure. Uh, so I picked my... I'm not 100% if it's my favorite, but it's definitely in the top two. It's hard to tell if it beats out Princess Mononoke as my favorite or not. Um, but I decided to explore Howl's Moving Castle as our example of the hero's journey today. The 2004 Miyazaki film, not the book. I will get into the differences in because there is a lot. Okay, so, uh, real quick, there, how, I'm talking about the plot of Howl's Moving Castle, the 2000, and I want to say it's four, yeah, 2004 Studio Ghibli film. This film's plot is different than the original book, Howl's Moving Castle. There's a lot of differences. Miyazaki, um, I looked up some, I read into some stuff about it. Um, the author was totally fine with it. She loved it. She said there was a lot of stuff that was in her book that wouldn't be able to be transferred really into the medium that well. And she also really liked the way it was done. She said it was like a fan fiction of her book and she really appreciated it. So it's not, the author's fine with it. So fucking. I don't want to hear no, oh, well, just, like, movie adaptations of books are always shit. Yeah, but sometimes the author's like, it's still fucking fun, okay? And you better not diss my fucking Studio Ghibli films or I'll catch you. But the big thing that is different about the Studio Ghibli film versus the um, book is the movie focuses more on an anti-war message because Miyazaki made it as a direct kind of like talking shit about the Iraq war that America undertook because he is a uh, devout pacifist um, so there's a lot of more anti-war rhetoric in the movie than in the book um, I won't go into all the little differences, I just wanted to point that out because that was a fun little fact I found out while researching. And Because uh, uh, what I, the, there's always the fun little fact I heard and learned, which was in the movie, Howl's Moving Castle is about avoiding the draft, whereas in the book it's about tax evasion. <laughs> but anyway, the hero's journey as it relates to Howl's Moving Castle, the, the 2004 film. Uh, Sophie is our hero. Um, so she starts out the world she is used to is the fact that she works at her parents hat shot even though she uh and she's kind of icked out by all the um so the like pro-war rhetoric and the soldiers acting around she is accosted uh on her way to go see her sister by uh two soldiers who are very creepy and the older you get the more you realize that they were like like low-key gonna maybe rape her which is a bit fucked uh, but she is then rescued by Howell the Magician. Uh, Howell uh, walks with her to keep her safe from the soldiers, and then she is dragged into a, a pursuit uh, that Howell is in, which is her call to adventure. 
uh, when Howell delivers her safely to her sister, her, uh, her sister is, uh, asks her if she wants to pursue her, any of her own dreams rather than just staying at her parents' hat shop. Uh, Sophie says something that is very sad as an eldest child, personally, where as the eldest, it is our responsibility to take care of the things the parents leave behind and the younger children get to do what they want. But we don't have time to unpack all of that. And her sister's like, Sophie, I hope that someday you can pursue a dream of your own. And Sophie's kind of reluctance and her resignation to stay at the hat shop is sort of her refusal of a call. Back at the hat shop, she runs into the Witch of the Moors, who is after Howell's heart, and she is then cursed and aged 70 years. I called this the meeting of the mentor in my notes because it is sort of this introduction into the world of witches that she didn't quite get because Howell is more of that call to adventure, that first fateful meeting, whereas this is sort of the, I'm going to show you how witches work. Um, knowing, however, that she couldn't stay in her home as a 90-year-old woman, um, she uh, escapes and goes towards the moors to try to get cured of her curse, which is her crossing of the threshold into the world of magic. Now that she's in the extraordinary world, uh, her gathering of allies, she starts off by meeting a scarecrow with a turnip for a head, uh, who is magicked in some way, and is able to fulfill her small wishes and desires when necessary. Uh, he helps her get to Howell's moving castle. She then meets Calcifer, the flame demon who runs Howell's castle, uh, and makes a deal with him to try to free him from uh, Howell's control. Uh, afterwards, she meets Markle, which is uh, Howell's apprentice. Uh, fun fact that I didn't realize until I was looking up some stuff for this. Uh, Markle is voiced by the guy who played PETA in the Hunger Games and is going to be the security guard in the upcoming uh, Five Nights at Freddy's movie. I did not know that. Uh, and she starts working as the housekeeper in How Howell's castle. After getting closer with Howell, she Howell uses her to uh, go and pretend to be his mother so that he can refuse the call to war from the king. Uh, she wants him, she, he essentially wants her to go in and say, my son will not be joining your war because he's a big fucking coward. Uh, she runs again into the witch that cursed her and, uh, and she meets the antagonistic part of the magical world uh, Suleiman, the head uh, witch of the king. Your tail is so puffy right now, kitty. Freya, the toys are on the other side of you. This is a very cat-heavy episode, apparently. Um, and so th I turn to Ped Calcifer, Howell, and Markle at this point are her set of allies, and this Witch of the Moors and Suleiman are now her enemies. And But Suleiman strips the Witch of the Moors of her magic. And is, Howell comes in to rescue Sophie from Suleiman. And he almost gets turned into a monster, but he is able to retain his form thanks to Sophie. And Sophie, Howell escape with the Witch of the Moors, who is now an old powerless woman, and uh, Suleiman's dog, whose name is Keen, which is you know a couple more allies on their side. Sophie learns that Howell in Calcifer's life are tied to each other and that neither, if one of them dies, they both die. And Howell is actually fighting uh, to mess up the war on both sides and is having trouble returning home and returning to his human form, uh, which is some of the trials. Once they have pissed off Suleiman, they, uh, Howell moves the castle and makes it become uh, Sophie's house shop. And uh, the reward for these trials of working with Howell is that she uh, is falling in love with him. Uh, one of the interesting things I read about this was actually that um, this film and Princess Mononoke, my other pick for the two best Ghibli films, in my opinion. This is just my opinion. Uh, also point out like the limits of masculinity because Howell wants to now protect everyone 
but is limited with his power and the fact that he is losing his humanity to do so. And then in Princess Mononoke, there's the fact that like Ashitaka has to rely on the his potential love interest San and the and nature, which is often seen as a more feminized force in order to save the day, which is a very interesting thing about the limits of masculinity, and it's probably the reason that I am the way I am. Uh, anyway, back to now we are back into uh, going into the third act or stage three. Uh, the house comes under attack from bombs and uh, Suleiman's monsters, and Howell goes to fight and protect Sophie and the others, uh, which is your big roadblock. Sophie, wanting to have Howell stop fighting and protect him, removes Calcifer from the hearth and out of the house, which destroys the house. And then they try to get back in and move around so that Howell doesn't have to keep protecting the house shop. He can escape. Uh, but then uh, the Witch of Moors realizes that Calcifer has Howell's heart. So she grabs him and bursts into flames because Calcifer is a fire demon. In order to save the Witch of the Life, the, the Witch of the Moors' life, Sophie throws a bunch of water on her, which could and realizes that she almost kills Calcifer. Uh, falling into some despair, she, uh, with the help of what the fucking I just said his name, Clean, the uh, Suleiman's dog, she is able to uh, try to find Howell, and is actually transported into a vision of Howell's past, where she sees how Howell and Calcifer are connected. And then she uh, shouts to Howell to find her in the future. Um, I saw um, a quick interlude about the Tears of the Kingdom. I saw a TikTok that almost made me cry because it was uh, Zelda in the newest Tears of the Kingdom game, and uh, but they dubbed over her lines of her holding the mas the broken master sword that you see in the ads with Sophie's speech of Howell, please come find me in the future. Oh, your bitch was not okay. <laughs> when she gets back to the future, uh, she it, Howell is there, and she has him go find Calcifer. And she is able to uh, give Howell back his heart and Cal uh, uh, rejoin them, his heart to his body. And Calcifer then becomes a spirit again, which is a resurrection of sorts because Howell is able to live, Calcifer is able to exist as a demon without being bound to a human. Um, if you want to go further onto the um, resurrection point, uh, a after Howell's been rescued, the uh, little bit of house that they were standing on begins to crumble and the scarecrow turnip head uh, saves them from falling off a cliff and Sophie gives him a kiss on the cheek as a thank you and it turns out that he is actually a prince. He is a prince from the neighboring country and has been missing and is was part of the impetus of this war was the fact that this prince was missing and so the two countries went to war because one country accused the other of stealing their prince. When actually he was just magicked into a scarecrow. Possibly by Suleiman, I'm not 100% because in the film it makes her out to be a very, like, warmongering bitch because it's a very anti-war thing. And it, like, when you see Suleiman at the end, it's about, she's just like, well, this war was pointless now. It's, I guess it's time to end it. Um, the return with the elixir concept of this is the fact that, like, although... Sophie's curse is under control. She decides that the uh, thing from the magical world she's taking with her is a uh, howl. And they get to live happily ever after. And the film ends with the moving castle moving away from a bunch of ships, uh, oddly off to do another war. But ends with uh, Sophie and uh, Howell sharing a passionate kiss uh, going in the opposite direction. Uh, yeah. And you get some good, good uh, Studio Ghibli magic. So yeah, so that is the hero's journey and the fool's journey. Two very different ways to go through uh, the kind of ways that a story is structured, but also um, kind of the fun ways. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. This was a um, 
it was real fun coming up with the examples for this one because the notes on the uh arcana and the stages of the hero's journey i've had technically done for i don't know the better part of a year so it was mainly the podcast research for this week was coming up with the examples and um i don't know i i think the fact that the epiphany that all jrpgs are the fool's journey was something that i really loved and i'm glad i was able to share with you all as always um you can support the podcast financially at uh, patreon.com slash cavalcade of tales uh, for five dollars a month you can join the book club uh, get er- access to the episodes early and uh join the discord and uh the prizes go up from there um and that is patreon.com slash cavalcade of tales uh if you want to contact me we can either talk about uh how great uh studio ghibli films are or um how all jrpgs are the fool's journey um so every every jrpg protagonist is a fucking fool um and yeah so you can find me on instagram and tiktok at uh white trash historian all lowercase all one word i'd love to hear what you guys think and yeah i uh this episode was a little bit different. This was a little bit more meta, but it was a fun one to do. And um, I hope everybody liked it. And thank you for being patient with this episode between uh, me having some, you know, allergy stuff. Um, the fact that I am, you know, at the, I finally recovered from multiple bouts of heat exhaustion. So the research wasn't as in depth. And uh, me fighting with my cat for a majority of the hero's journey my hero's journey is getting her to stop eating fucking plastic oh yeah um i hope you enjoyed this episode um i will see you again next week for a new episode on a topic i haven't decided yet i'll uh, i'll consult the wall i think i actually have a good idea of which one i'm gonna do next um the outline will be interesting and it'll give me an excuse to watch some things that i enjoy um which at the end of the day is such a good thing for this podcast uh yeah so uh thank you all for listening i will see you guys next week um okay all right bye